Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree, the smoothest glass of Amarula for your mind. I am half of your host, Nicholas Larimer, and as always, joined by the other half of your hosts, Gavrila Krauza. Who's feeling Dude, very I Russian today? I'm feeling very Russian. I've been I've been rushing around. I think that like we need to amend our logo uh, slogan to like smoothest glass of Amarula for your mind that can't be looted or something <laughs> like like you can't loot this show this show is unlootable and yes, i think yes, that's yes. one of the best things about it you know uh, so so what are we going to talk about today and i guess um did anything happen this week i don't know it's been been kind of slow slow week know, just another slow on. week no news uh, oh no wait there was the total collapse of law and order and the destruction yes. of government legitimacy Dude, I saw a tweet about this. That was yeah. that was uh, that that was a thing. No, there was happened. like a there was a news story or something. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, apparently, Jeez. apparently, I I saw this guy Gabriel Krauser on China Global Television Network. He said that one percent of GDP has estimated to have been lost. Huh. In the Way last uh, few days, hundred and fifty thousand jobs under threat. Fifty thousand jobs probably already lost. The 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 nice background thing that he that he was trying to say, or but he didn't get the chance to get it all out, is that if you look at South Africa's financial situation, because of the two recessions of the New Dawn, so that's the technical recession <laughs> of 2018 and the technical recession of 2019. The New Dawn now with more recessions than the Zuma years. <laughs> <laughs> plus the stagnation of the Zuma years, plus the loss of 1.4 million jobs during the pandemic. South Africa has been put in a position where its mortgage delinquency rates are about 7.8%. America's housing crisis was triggered around 8, 8.5%, 9 uh, So... People have already borrowed too much and can't pay it back. Add this to it, and that's just another knock-on effect that people aren't I don't, that a lot of mainstreamers are not talking about. Uh, the same for insurance. I mean, obviously, every business that's not insured uh, is at serious risk of not being able to reopen. But those businesses that are insured then pass on those costs to insurance companies, which I don't know how well they're doing. I mean, some of them. I know Discovery was publishing yeah. some very good results during the plague because no one was coming to the hospital. Um, but that's already started to catch up a bit. And in terms of business insurers, uh, that's a tricky position. I, so we're I, to yeah, I had, a, I had a friend who worked for an insurance company and I think he got laid off relatively recently because they were worried about uh, their finances. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't think they're doing great. Uh, my girlfriend pointed out to me... Uh, she, she was talking yesterday to me about how, uh, you know, she very carefully read her car insurance contract. And she said the most glaring thing that she noticed was that it specifically did not cover riot or protest damage. <laughs> and I wonder how many people in this past couple of days have looked at their insurance contract and found out that there's some very nasty provisions there about what's not covered. And uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, and, and I guess we're saying this because um, some of our listeners may not even believe this because it's so stupid, but there are morons who are on, in the media, mostly on, on radio, saying, oh, look, guys, that, that these people are covered by insurance. It's not such a big deal. 
yeah. all this looting and rioting. Uh, yeah. So that's obviously stupid. <laughs> we just that's dumb. That you know what right. else is? You know what else is dumb? Like burning things down. That's dumb. I, I, yeah. I do kind of love. There've been a lot of videos going around. A lot of heartwarming videos. I I have asked one of my colleagues to tally up the views on all of the videos that um, are kind of positive and like let's work together and clean things together and be non-racial and so on. And I think we've seen millions of views in this week. Uh, so I think this this week really stands out like in a good way for for smart human decency getting a voice. Uh, but every now and then there is just a moment, like a human moment. Like there's one of these videos where a lady starts crying and she's like, sort of had a shoe shop, like a Nike store or something by Hillcrest in Durban, yeah. which is like kind yeah, of like a, a Bryanston yeah. of Durban. And she's like, why would you like? Stealing things, okay, I kind of get it, but why would you burn it down as well? She's like weeping right. because not only was it robbed, it was also burnt down. So burning things, stupid. I'm just going to yeah, add, yeah. thinking insurance is going to just, it's fine. Money comes from nowhere. That's stupid. Burning yeah. things, stupid. Uh, well, let's get to some other stupids, but maybe let's give a sense of perspective first. Yeah, so uh, we, of course, had this orgy of, almost nihilistic violence, looting and destruction across the country. Um, but as I said in a, in a piece I've, I've written, and as my parents have already said, because they've written pieces on this too, because that's the sort of family I apparently come from. Um, yeah. On, on which note, I just want to say, Nicholas's mom is the bomb. <laughs> if you want to read a very interesting <laughs> piece, read uh, uh, her contribution on the Daily Friend to on Sunday, the 18th yes. of July. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we said that, I mean, there has been great, terrible things that have happened, but at the same time, there's been some fairly wonderful things that have happened. I uh, So I, I thought that for me, first time, I really saw in a very real way that moderate middle that we always talk about in our, uh, in, the, in the IRR's survey data, I really saw it. Like, in force, flexing its muscles, doing things. Yeah. And it was pushed to the brick. It, it was only out there because things were real bad. Law and order really did collapse in some parts of the country completely. I mean, it, it, was, it was real bad. Yeah. And, uh, and that moderate middle came out and stood in the gap and kept us back from the abyss. And that is a wonderful thing to see. It's, it's confirmation, I think, of so much of what we've pinned our theories of positive change in south africa on um and it's good to know that 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 it really you know we're not we're not just seeing ghosts in the data this is a real thing and mm. it's filled with real people who are willing to do the hard yards put themselves at risk to defend themselves their communities and even other people's communities too and stuff um you know a lot of people i think were very charitable in this last week as well yeah. a lot of good to match the bad will from people um the story I think, that stuck out. Yeah, okay, yeah, go ahead. The story that stuck out to me, though, the funniest one, because it is like the perfect analogy for everything that's gone wrong in the past couple of years, was the story of a CEO of a wealth management firm. I think it was Ubuntu Wealth Management or something. Who, according yeah. to a news report, was arrested. Multiple news reports. Multiple news reports. Was arrested. For looting, a CEO. And, and what did and he, he lose, Nicholas? He was looting a bar stool, 
some booze, presumably because, you know, lockdown means that it's difficult to get booze these days. High resale then. I think there was a washing machine. <laughs> and you said, you think you read about a TV? Yeah. How can you be so cheap? <laughs> I'm sorry. No, but dude, what do you think he makes a year? Two million rand a year plus? Yeah. At least? Yeah. And the dude was looting a freaking shop alongside yeah. other people. In fact, he probably denied some poor shack-dwelling looter a TV <laughs> because he, he took it <laughs> before it that guy could get his hand on it. So not only did he loot a law-abiding citizen's shop when he could afford to buy those things himself, he also denied poorer looters <laughs> share of the plunder. These are the gradations <laughs> of madness. If, if there is a better analogy for the treachery and awfulness of South Africa's sort of political business wealth elites at the moment, I cannot think of it because, yeah. my goodness, it is <laughs> it's quite something. Well, I'm, and I think just to elaborate on that, the fact that this guy is sort of runs this uh, company called Ubuntu Wealth. <laughs> That's even better. <laughs> How could you like... Uh, could you think of a less Ubuntu thing than this? Because I can't. <laughs> yeah, no, I can't. It really, it really, it 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 got under my skin in the sense that I I mentioned this a couple of times in some of our early podcasts. One of the most life changing conversations I ever had was with an old uh, high school friend at Stithians, and I mentioned the school because this guy went to Hilton. So he was not only running Ubuntu Wealth, but he was uh, sort of at the most expensive uh, private boarding school in the country. But, um, the, yeah, the, my, my friend in high school uh, taught me Ubuntu Ubuntu Gabantu. I wondered, like, what's going on? People say Ubuntu, and I didn't really know what it meant. Like, does it mean Kumbaya, let's just hold hands and be nice to each other? And he's like, well, no, technically it means Ubuntu, a person... Umuntu, a person, Gumuntu, is a person, Gabantu, via other people, by way of other people. And that was offered to me as a kind of contra-hypothesis to the soul hypothesis, which uh, Plato and Socrates really codified in a way um, at a time when ancient Greece was... Um, uh, had multiple gods and had these sort of funny stories about how titans actually made people and the gods compete for their loyalty and the people compete for the gods uh good favor and they were like this is kind of silly uh because gods whatever they are must be good and there can only be one good so there can only really be one god and then they said, and as for gods, kind of so for persons, there must be some kind of immortal soul, which in itself is purely um, innocent and, you know, precedes life and survives death and so on. And that uh, Nietzsche sort of proposed that Christianity was basically Platonism for the masses. Uh, and I, I, I don't want to dispute that one way or another. Um, I do just want to observe that since in Corsinati... Yeah, that's a rabbit hole we could spend the whole hour on. <laughs> yeah. But since, of course, Anati raised this idea with me uh, that, you know, there's a different way of thinking about what makes you you. And that what makes you you 
is uh, something to do with the way other people, the, the fact that other people treat you uh, and treat with you. And I was like, that's a very interesting idea that is just so far outside of my Christian theological uh, upbringing at, at uh, schools. And then when I went to go study philosophy at Princeton, it turned out that something like that idea um, through pragmatism, semantic holism, uh, intellectual holism, you know, agential holism rather, sort of these ideas that like what makes a person a person in a way that we can try and explain with the least recourse towards faith is, for example, the capacity to enact symbolical representation, to speak a language. And that clearly is something that you can only do insofar as you are, are around other language speakers, not people who have to teach you. It turns out kids can learn from their parents just by listening. But you need other people to talk. You need other people to uh, perform kind of certain logical functions. And, and anyway, that's a kind of uh, very theoretical thing. And and I and and my one of my sort of great miseries is that um, I wanted to say, well, look, here's an interesting fact. It turns out like the best contemporary philosophy and this like ancient uh, Bantu language uh, phrase, which appears in Zulu, right. but there's also cognates in Kosa in various Bantu languages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At least in Guni languages, but I think Bantu languages more broadly. Uh, that they kind of gel and they line up. And isn't that an interesting historical observation? And what more can we make out of it? Well, uh, I, I often say semi-jokingly yeah. that, that every single idea has already been thought of. We're just repackaging them. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, so, so uh, you know, I think contemporary pragmatist philosophy is something like a repackaging of Ubuntu. And, and the moral dilemma is this, right? Or the, or the linguistic dilemma is that Ubuntu has come to mean effectively black people taking care of black people. So, like, a black person is a black person through other black people. Yeah. Uh, people who talk about Ubuntu hardly, me, usually, and I've tracked this for years. I, I hoped it wasn't so, but Nkosanati alerted me to it. He was like, you know, here's the terrible thing. Bantu means person in all the Bantu languages, and tu is the right. sort of root word right. for person. Uh, but because the Nats kind of use Bantu to mean black person, it's become a convention yes. in English yeah. to say Bantu to mean black. And... In Zulu too, so when Becky Kele was in Newcastle recently as well, he kind of distinguishes between Umlungu or Inyama and Gabantu. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, which is so, not great. <laughs> which is not so, great. <laughs> yeah, because I think it was like, you need to have the word person in your language. And we, by, by turning Ubuntu into a black thing and Gabantu into a black thing, we're kind of losing a, a sense of personhood in a very very real way mm, and i think mm. what the ceo demonstrates is just my final symbolical interpretation is that when you abandon personhood when you abandon the thought that human beings all are equal moral targets that deserve equal protection before the law that deserve some kind of basic treatment of dignity you might do so in the hopes that you you draw a narrower kind of family group around some supposedly common bloodline and that that'll actually improve how people treat each other at least within that bloodline. So they might be sort of nasty across racial lines, but within racial lines, they'll be very nice. Um, that's that's like the, the aspirational dream of Ubuntu in its 21st century meaning. Hmm. 
it's this corrupt meaning and that doesn't work out because 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 like <laughs> the great champions of ubuntu end up stealing from private businesses and depriving poor looters of the goods and uh humiliating themselves and the and those institutions they're associated with and those advantages that they gained are shown to have not really come along with the pressures of character building and i think those pressures of character building the everyone did i totally had a bit of fomo your mom mentioned fomo as one of the reasons to loot fear of missing out <laughs> it's so true though <laughs> i kind of got that i was like what the hell man i'd love to like oh, i just want to go yeah. When, when you see someone running away with a with a brand new TV, you think to yourself, "Am I just a sucker?" Yeah, what am I doing wrong? <laughs> like, like, look, I know it's bad and wrong and everything, but yeah, but like, am I am I just screwing myself here? <laughs> <laughs> and I do, and I think a lot of the reason, like, as much as we want to pretend that we're like moral saints, a lot of the reason that we don't do it is because we have habit, been habituated into not doing that. Like we've been told by mommy and daddy, you know, slapped on the hand, don't nick things, punished at school, or seen other people being punished if they did a little bit of petty theft. You know, they they're all, all well, and then major feedback I, loops I, of, of crime and punishment. I've never been, in the, in the yeah, I've never been one for crowds. So like me personally, I I, uh, I think maybe I could do some solo looting, but mass looting is not really my jam. Doesn't that doesn't work that way. <laughs> but, but anyway, my, my, my point is I think you need Okay, so let so let's zoom out, right? We we the, the zoom out is this. Um, right now we're in a situation where the crisis might be over, in the in the narrowest and most immediate sense. We're not entirely sure if that's true. I've heard WhatsApp yeah. notes coming out of uh, rural KZN. parts of of KZN, just north of Durban, close to a lot of the hotspots, right around Phoenix, where my aunt and uncle. Oh, my uncle's a minister in a church that's on Phoenix Drive, uh, just next to Phoenix. And they've been, you know, yesterday they handed out lots of food. And today they're doing that too, trying to do the good work. My uncle's also been kind of manning some of the patrols and trying to spread the light of like, let's be let's be very diligent and disciplined in how we do this mm -hmm. and not get too excited. And I'm very proud, actually, of my family's contributions there and my, no, my that's, that's cousin really who's like a fancy lawyer and her husband sort of in the spa manning the tills and moving the goods from the basement it's wonderful stuff but they've been getting uh, messages from church members in the community saying look we've been warned in the townships not to buy all of our stuff today and not to go out tomorrow on monday because there's going to be a clamp down and it's going to be more looting and it's going to be worse this time because they also want to burn down the courthouses peter maritzburg high court because it was involved with zoomers uh, judgment, uh, Durban courts go up to escort all the way through Grain Town, Pine Town, um, maybe also coming down from Colenso, uh, and on the N3 highway up through Highway, Carry Smith, all of Moy River Plaza again. So they basically have been told, like, just stay away from the roads, bunker down, stay in your homes. And uh, one of the small details about that is that the Kaba brothers, who are family relations of Jacob Zuma, and around whom sort of wild allegations have been whirling for two decades uh, mm -hmm. are involved with this move. The Kaiba brothers then put out a press statement to say, these are major taxi kingpins, and the thought is that they have the logistical capacity and the sway to be able to pull off a much yes. more aggressive if, attack if there's anything, than we've seen yet. If, there, 
if there's anything the last few years of South African history have taught us, it's that the taxi bosses are basically the great power in this country. Mm. Mm. So, and they've been for the most part fabulously. Yeah, they've been for the most part South African. What's it, Sakato? The that taxi association that's really been at the forefront of been doing the good work, protecting private property, trying to get malls keep malls safe, trying to get people to those malls and back um, to buy goods. That's been great. So the thought is, okay, so maybe now it flips the other way. The Glaba Brothers then released a press statement and did a little interview saying, no, this is silly. You know, we are close to the Zoomers. We love the Zoomers. We respect them. Jacob Zuma's brother-in-law just died this week. So we mourn together, but we don't loot together. Uh, we, we, we're not involved with that and we're not going to be. Uh, so maybe this is just like a, a, a nasty rumor and it's all going to be okay. Maybe things no. are about to get worse. We don't know. But where we are right now is in a position where a, a lot of talking heads on the news. I was on Newsroom Africa yesterday. I was just on CGT and Nana uh, and watching ENCA and SABC. A lot of the talking heads are speaking as if the crisis is over. The cleanup has come and now we need to see how do we get out of this. And so there's a kind of root cause analysis thing going on with a lot of competing narratives. One is that this is a, 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 a small minority organized Zoomerites, a political, basically this is a political faction fight within the ANC. Yes. Another narrative is that this is a kind of Zulu racial motive, mobilization or ethnic mobilization. Soroma Maposa said that and then walked it back in what was almost a great victory for racism is not the problem getting the president to say it. Um, <laughs> another narrative is that like, this is poverty, inequality, unemployment. Uh, you know, you've got this powder keg of just like desperate people. You need any old spark and then it'll light. Um, I, I suppose those are the main ones. And then there are these sort of psychological nuances about fear of missing mm -hmm. out, about uh, and, and and maybe the next headline, last headline one, is to say that you've had so much disrespect of property rights, so much talk about business, white monopoly capital, and as as the paradigm exemplar coming out of Zuma's children uh, and Carl Niehaus and Jacob Zuma himself saying that he's been arrested <laughs> because of an apartheid thing, um, but that you've had so much disrespect for property rights through the EWC campaign that people just feel more emboldened to steal. Like the, the, the moral decay has, has kind of already taken place. Not everyone, mm -hmm. but a significant minority have come to believe that they own what they deserve. On top of that, there's the lawlessness, 10 violent protests a day before the pandemic as an average, according to SAP's data, that's three times higher than in 2010. Uh, so, and... As uh, Sipo Seele, the Deputy Vice-Chancellor of the University of Zululand, said yesterday on a, a, a sort of as a co-guest with me on Newsroom Africa, he said, you really got to look at the unions who, who keep burning things down every time they don't, don't get what they want in, in yeah. uh, trade negotiations. Children see that, people see that, and they think, oh, this is the way that you're supposed to do it. So, of course. So I there think, are a lot I mean, of different strands. And everyone's got a solution, depending on what strand they kind of choose out. And I think yeah. part of the nightmare that we're sitting in is that is that you have exactly what Franz Crenier always talked about. You have a moment of crisis, and what the moment of crisis does is potentially break the logjam or the gridlock in public debate. And whoever's been injecting the preponderance of persuasive ideas 
into the body politic in the build-up to the crisis then has their ideas absorbed and used as the basis for regrowth or development after the crisis. And right. so right now it's like the last minute where people are desperately trying to get in one more last word in the hopes that they will define South Africa's development after the third wave riots of 2021. And that makes it, this a difficult time to speak, a difficult time to think because every sentence seems to say too much and not enough. Every, <laughs> every hope seems like a crazy pipe dream and also like something that uh, is just obvious depending on who you're talking to. Um, and best yeah, that's times, kind of- Worst of times, cliche, cliche, yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah, <right>. exactly. <laughs> so it's hard to, it's, so I'm just, I've been struggling to, to, to be intelligent in this extreme of the best of times and worst of times. Because that's mm -hmm. not a particularly intelligent, you know, it's, it's kind of poetic, but it's, it doesn't re leave a hell of a lot of room for analysis or logical entailment, material connections and so on. What is it really? Okay, what else? What else? Okay, it's the best of times, the worst of times. What else? So, if I may change track slightly here. Yeah. One of the big fights that seems to be coming now is the is 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 the debate over how much of this was part of some fiendish plot. Some grand design by the Zoomerites to, you know, destabilize the country. And that's very much been the the, the more mainstream thing that's coming out of Ramaphosa and groups like that. And I think us, uh, or at least when I say us, I say most of the IRR, we sort of seem to be taking the line more that, yeah, you know, the Zuma stuff might have been a spark, but ultimately this is about so much more than that. And, uh, you know, most people involved in all of this really don't care that much about Zuma one way or the other. Now that we've had a couple of days to think about it and there's been all these allegations of WhatsApp groups and things like that, what do you, what do you make of that whole thing? I'm... I think that there, that some of the more violent stuff in KZN has been perhaps more deliberately directed, but that a lot of the stuff, particularly in Gauteng, and especially a lot of the looting, has been far more the sort of FOMO free-for-all stuff. What do you think? Yeah. I th so the simplest answer is this. I and some sort of ex-military ex-police types that i've spoken to mm -hmm. I, i've i've put i've put this to people whose opinion i respect if you gave me a million rand and connections with like 10 proper mercenaries maybe 20 mm -hmm. i could bring this country to its knees yeah that sounds about right because uh uh, not because I'm a genius, I couldn't do that in most countries, but because our police, intelligence, and armies, you know, sec our security services in general have proved so flat-footed and inept that the major logistical pinch points that could be taken out um, are relatively unguarded, so it wouldn't be a hard thing to do. I don't want to get into the details of how, but we kind of did a costing analysis of like how literally... How many sticks of dynamite would you need? How many monkey wrenches? How many chainsaw uh, electric grinders? 
and it, it really looks like this could be done very affordably. If you really wanted to turn off all the lights, scrub the water, scrub fuel supply. Mm. You talked in a meeting the other day about a point of uh, infrastructure that could be destroyed with a machete. <laughs> yes, or a monkey wrench. I mean, and I've seen yeah. it with my own eyes and worked with someone who works on possibly the most important uh, pipe in in South Africa. And he, he showed me how you could completely... <laughs> anyway, so I don't want to. Uh, <laughs> Let's not give anyone any ideas. <laughs> yeah, I really don't want to do that because this is because you can't loot this podcast because it's free for everyone. Um, but 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 yeah. So the simple thing is, if you think that a very well organized group of people is so willing to expose themselves to p the potential blowback uh, of being seen to be enemies of the state that they have tried to bring South Africa to its knees in the hopes that Ramaphosa would then get the police or army to shoot lots of looters like Marikana, and then that would sort of force a cabinet reshuffle or his resignation. That's the theory. It's called mm -hmm. the Clem Center theory. If that's your theory, then, then hang tight for the next couple of weeks because we ain't seen nothing yet. Yeah. Unless you okay. suppose that these guys don't have between them a million rand or don't have between them like 10 proper like mercenaries, people who are willing to, in the dark cover of night, go and put a stick of dynamite, um, or are too stupid to figure out what a, 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 a kind of neophyte like Gabriel Krauser can figure out uh, from his balcony in Linden. Uh, so I, I, none of those options seem to make sense. So assuming that we do see major infrastructure attacks going forward in the next week and the week to come. Uh, then I think that theory gains more plausibility. Insofar as we don't see that, I think that theory kind of loses plausibility. Now, that is a, a practical application. The theoretical application is something like this. People for thousands of years have struggled to come up with uh, consistent and exhaustive theories of causation. In other words, Everyone has a theory of causation that works for some kind of instances, but it's hard to have theories of causation that work for all kinds of instances. A really simple example is if you put water, if you put H2O in a glass container and add heat, eventually the bottle will explode. It'll shatter. Right. Now, it, as it turns out, there will be one water molecule that strikes the crystal lattice of the glass at one location with such velocity that that initiates the kind of shatter. So if you imagine the matrix, slow-mo, the helicopter goes into the glass building and it's like one point and then the glass ripples, you know, there's like a wave rippling across the whole front of the building. And then after the wave, the, the glass kind of shatters and explodes. Yes. <laughs> if you zoom in on a glass, if you just like, you know, put a glass bottle on your stovetop and blow it up. It's just going to look like bang, like dynamite exploding. But if you really zoom in, what you're going to see is the same thing. It's going to be like a bullet striking this one point in the side of the glass and then it rippling apart. So what do you say? Do you say that one molecule caused the glass to explode? Or do you say, no, the combination of water, Plus heat, heat yeah. pressure, pressure. Mm. that caused it to explode. And, and, the, the God-honest answer is both are true. Yeah. It's, it's kind of silly to pretend one or the other. And that's why Franz Krenier, 
is so keen on talking about the spark and the powder keg. Zuma is the spark, the powder keg is the background conditions of unemployment, poverty, yeah. bad policy ideas, and so on. Because both are true. When you burn a candle, uh, the, the wick is on fire and the wax is on fire. It's not actually one or the other. Both are causing the flame to work. You kind of need both. So I think that the the this is a classic place where media houses like to go and fight because both sides are correct and both sides can just add ammunition to their own argument by drawing on more and more data. Um, and they're never really going to disprove the other side. Yeah. Uh, no one's ever going to prove that this had nothing to do with poverty. Or <laughs> yes. Economic That's going to be a little bit difficult. <laughs> and no one's ever going to prove that there wasn't some instigation or you know deliberate machinations to produce civil unrest. There was clearly both. So I think that what ought to be done is that people ought to apply the the dog the diagnosis or the the causal account within the framework of what kind of remedy are they thinking about. So if yeah. you're thinking as a policeman, then I really don't care what your opinion about poverty is. I don't care what right. your opinion about policy is. Like your job is to find out who pulled the trigger, where, when, was there criminal intent. Okay, find the evidence, arrest that guy. That's all you have to do. And insofar as South Africans from their armchairs want to think like policemen, they can speculate. Who organized this? How many were there? Was it 10 people? Was it 20 people? Was it 100 people? Did it go through this? Or 12, as Becky Taylor said the other day. Yes, 12 is a nice, you know, it's a, it's a dozen. What a nice number. You get 12 eggs in a basket. <laughs> so, so, so you can play that game. If you want to be policemen, play that game. What I really want citizens to do, because I think this is what citizens ought to do, but it's a difficult thing around the world to get citizens to do, is to think about the law. Because the law is ultimately what we choose it to be. But in our system, it's kept very far away from our thoughts on multiple levels, not just by the way that this gets presented, and see internal faction, or do you want that party or this party? Do you like this personality, Ramaphosa, or that personality, Zuma? I think they're both wonderful guys to have a beer with. You know, that's not <laughs> going to put bread on the table. No, it's not going to break the logjam of policy, poverty, all that good stuff. What's going to change the logjam is the law. Yeah. And this is, and this is where I think we're going nowhere. I mean, I'm trying to put out as much as I can, and I know my colleagues much the same, to say now is the time to start thinking about the law, the laws that made South Africa so uh, so weak economically over the last decade. Yeah, don't, don't miss the pivot point which we are sitting on right now. Yeah, but I don't think that, uh, I don't think that uh, most public moral authorities are ready to go down our road. I think most people, you know, moral authorities in South Africa love to condemn criminality and corruption. Very few are interested in debating well, the law. Yeah, it's, it's very... With that defines criminality. It's very few people who are willing to 
put up their hand and say that uh, the criminality is good because even those who do do that will always claim that it's like not criminality in some sort of way yeah i mean I, criminality. yeah i am see you know some people my, my favorite conflation which i've seen reemerge, um is that criminality is capitalism yeah, you see, there you go. You <laughs> you shift the goalposts a bit so that you can. Because that's not really the real criminals are the people who own the shops, not the people stealing TVs out of them. Yeah, and that is, and that I mean, that's a real line from the Antis Umrabula document. It's a real line that was written by the spokesperson for the Department of uh, Justice and Correctional Services, yeah. calling the IRA a bunch of racists on Tuesday when the country was on fire. That was hilarious. Um, in terms of a sense of priority. But I, so I do think that, um, I think that the, the real question is something like this. Let's suppose, let's suppose what I thought was happening last week, Saturday and Sunday is what happened. I, last week, Sunday, I saw, okay, Zoom has been arrested and now there've been some like 20 shops looted in KZN. Small little thing. So like slightly bigger than your average day in South Africa, but slightly worse than uh, – so slightly not as bad as I thought the worst could be. But then I thought, okay, yeah. so here's what's probably going to happen. This is like hen pecking. All the chickens are in the coop, and they're all going about their business, and it's kind of miserable, and they're stuck there. Then one hen somehow just has a fleck of blood. You can literally just drop a bit of tomato sauce on that hen, and then the next hen sees, oh, this is a weak one, and pecks at that hole and then the next hens also see oh that five are already ganging up on this one so they pick two and the 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 hen that's being picked that had one sort of sign of weakness gets completely destroyed in like 30 seconds yeah. uh so you just you know everyone's sitting here and they're very uncomfortable and then someone just exposes the the weakness and yeah. more and more people join and then more and more people join and more and more people join until the army steps in so you only really need one hen at the beginning or one drop of tomato sauce at the beginning. So it's like a relatively small thing. They're not very well coordinated. They're not very serious. Um, they're not going to uh, attack uh, further pinch. You know, they have a pinch points in logistics like truck burning and looting. There's a connection there to still stealing. There are other kinds of infrastructure attack points that where, where you can't steal anything. Uh, those kinds of things have, for, for the most part, been left standing even where the oxygen tanks were ruined you know you steal the medicine from the pharmacy and you resell it so let's say that it's a small little spark not a big thing not a very well coordinated thing coordinated enough that some people need to get arrested but it's a small little thing and the main issue here is that we're so poor and angry and have so little respect for property rights and and cultural mores that stand against this kind of thing that uh, we've had this kind of regression then the question is, between now and 2024, how many times does this happen again? How many other random sparks trigger this right. level of carnage? And, and I think part of what's hard to answer about that question is that, is that I'm tempted to say, like, I... I'm tempted to say between now and 2024, there won't be anything as bad as this. 
There won't be like mm -hmm. 200 people plus dying in a few days. There won't be 1% of GDP's damage done to the economy in a week. That this might be the worst. And insofar as this is the worst, then you've got to say, well, how much, how well does your, your spark powder cake theory work? Um, this It must mean that there's a major spark that has to be lit in order for the powder cake to blow as much as it's done now if you think this is going to be the worst for the next three years. So then the alternative is to think, okay, well, let's take this seriously. Let's take seriously the fact that like most men our age and younger are unemployed mm. and not just a slim 51% majority, like a serious majority. Let's take seriously the thought that the graduating class of 2019, 5% of those, you know, 5% of the grade ones of, of 2008. Kids entered grade one, yeah. Matriculated with a matric pass in maths. With, well, not with a matric pass, with a maths over fifty percent, which is, yeah. the, you know, basically the sign of a good matric. Yeah. Um, let's take seriously the thought that without liberalizing labor relations, uh, which means getting rid of the minimum wage, you know, people who can't who don't have the skills to make three and a half thousand rand a month should be allowed to make 2000 rand a month at least, and then gain the skills on the job. So without getting rid of minimum wage, without allowing businesses to fire people uh, slightly more easily, without getting rid of BE, without getting rid of EWC, while still pushing for NHI, the economy is just not going to grow at the kind of rate that's going to absorb labor. Yeah. Let's take seriously the thought that that, in combination with the signals being sent by the ANC in terms of race nationalism, stigmatizing WMC, from the EFF stigmatizing Indians, from both stigmatizing property rights. Let's take seriously the thought that that is, those are the major, that's like the water and the heat and the glass and the pressure. That's really what blows this thing up and it's going to blow it up again. If 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 we if we if we follow that causal line, then I do think we have to come to the conclusion that more likely than not, not inevitably, but more likely than not, between now and 2024, you see more of this at the same scale. And then you have to think what kind of moments could trigger this. And to my mind, Phoenix gives a kind of answer where uh you know, the, on the ground level, I don't know the facts. I have seen interviews with a young woman who says that she was arrested, that she was detained by a group of Indian vigilantes who stole her phone, burnt her car, and said that they were going to kill all black people as a kind of collective punishment for what the uh, residents of Phoenix had suffered. Then saw interviews with black and Indian Phoenix residents together saying, no, look, there's no racism here. Uh, you know, calling into question, you know, she says... They wanted to kill me, but if they really wanted to kill her, they could have killed her. It's not like she was driving right. away. Like she was out of her car in their hands. Um, and, yeah, yeah, and there was no there was no violence that we can tell about apart from the theft. Yeah. So so I don't know what's going on there, but I do know that I've been called for interviews and and watching lots of people go on and on about how th there's lots of racial tension and you've got these white people and these Indian people shooting black people and that's very terrible. Um, and, and can we just say that the EFF? 
is continuing to play its role of being a collection of the worst things in South Africa by fanning every single possible expression of this this fear and this tension. Um, go and look at their social media. They're saying things like, ah, oh, this government is allowing the Indians to kill our people kind of stuff. And yeah, yeah. anyway, sorry. <laughs> they are just so, so hideous. Yeah. So I think that I think that um, I think that kind of thing sows the seeds. So I, I don't know what happened there. And like, look, maybe there was some racist vigilante justice. Mm. So whether seen, it's fake, seen, whether it's fake or real, it's that yeah. kind of thing that I think is most likely to trigger the next round. And maybe it is a court case, someone getting a quick acquitted or convicted, something like that, and it's spilling over. And yet, and here's my final point about this. If you think it's crazy for me to say that I think that there will be a single incident as bad as this in the next three years, I'm prepared to agree with you if you're prepared to take me seriously when I say Stats SA's data shows that violent protests in this country are up threefold between 2010 and 2019 to 10 average violent protests per day. And that it's in the averages and not in the extreme that you find the increased instability. That's where I think it's most likely to occur. And the reason that I think that is not just theoretical. It's also based on South African history. The South African Migration Project, which is a kind of think tech university collaboration running out of Canada, uh, started to do with the sort of 2008 xenophobic attacks. They have found consistently that you get these these pinch point riot things where, you know, Bangladeshis and Somalians and, you know, people's shops are looted and broken and people are killed and so on in intense ways that draws the media's attention. But SAMP has repeatedly found that more property is damaged and more lives are lost in the in-between. So you have like 80 in a week and then the media looks at it, 80 people killed in a week, and then the media looks at it and then talks about it for a month and then forgets about it. And then three years again, you have another 60 or whatever killed and the damage that goes with that. In those three years in between, with the one a day, two a day, three a day, and so on, that's where the bulk of deaths come from. That's where the bulk of cost comes from. So my suspicion is that um, absent another kind of, uh, extreme and intense ventilation like we've just seen on like we might still be inside of. It's not like we're going to go back to the past normal. It's like we're going to have another ratchet up from 10 a day to 12 a day. Yeah. And where we don't see that, it'll just be where, where big companies give up and pull out. And so there is nothing left to loot. As we've seen happening on the coast as you've seen happening in northwest no i think that's i think that's very uh, very good point um and that is the the thing that i think so many people don't realize about south africa is just the background level of violence that just goes on and on and on in the country and has as you say been slowly ticking up in the background um and so the more of it you on. have, the more the more yeah. the, the more of that you have, the more people you have taking the law into their own hands to defend themselves, 
the more right. you have that being then turned into another reason to have another round of protests right <clears throat> which is something we already see um a lot of i mean uh i can't remember the percentage but a large number uh, a significant portion of our murders per year are actually vigilante killings yeah. people you know in the neighborhood saying oh this person is accused of rape or he's accused of stealing a phone or something and then burning them to death or beating them up with sticks or something um so that's so that's why my feeling is that we're stuck in this nasty situation where people who are lucky enough like i am right here i'm in a sort of little gated community type thing in a very safe suburb that Sir ramaposa himself came to visit linden on saturday to <laughs> oh, i <yes>. guess <laughs> make sure that the hotbed of carnage in linden was being properly <laughs> yes i believe he didn't go to phoenix uh, when he was in kzn which um mm. <laughs> Robert Look, Linden, there coming out coming out to show his his great uh, uh leadership skills um, he came to london so that's great but you know here we are and it's lovely and and it's and it's largely an academic exercise in terms of our personal material situation because i don't own anything of value so i don't have to worry about my house's value going up or down or my stocks or anything like that mm -hmm. too poor for that kind of nonsense and too safe to worry about my personal level security at the local spa but more and more south africans tip from like where i am with my nose above water to a position yes. where they're below water and the more of that you have the more feedback you have into violence and lawlessness which is why i think this really is the time to be talking about the law about the actual rules not about the background conditions not about we we, we all know that stuff what we what we need to think about is not just the police's inability to administer the law but what the law says and if i can say one thing about that in terms of the debates that i've had and the debates that i'm looking forward to you know this racism is not the problem thing i'm so proud that we've got this billboard up right now because there are south africans around the country that have put up their hands and said look we are going to make sure racism is not the problem where we are right now we are going to be for, you know, we're going to treat people regardless of race. We're going to defend our stuff. We're going to work with our neighbors, however they look. We're going to hand out, you know, food to the hungry people who can't get bread right now. Let's help them out. Let's see what we can do. Let's be non-racial. That's been great. But when I go into debates about a thing like Phoenix, it's kind of the rules that we're really debating. Like we're I know that we want to debate the instance, but really we don't have enough facts. So we're going to end up debating the rules. And for some people, the rule is racism. This is the rule. As in, this is the norm. Pretty much everyone is racist in South Africa. And so this is the rule of the law. You have to have quotas. You have to uh, employ this and that, use this and that supply chain. The, the rules assume that everyone is racist or that almost everyone is racist and that the exception is the non-racialist the alternative is to think that the rule as in the norm as in what most south africans believe is non-racialism that south africa that racism is not the problem in south africa most of the time in most places that racism when it does happen is the exception to the rule that's the thing that must be punished and so the rule in terms of the law should be non-racial in order to punish anyone who breaks 
the, the, the social compact that we have to treat with one another with respect, not to shoot people unless you are directly threatened, not to steal things, uh, not to burn things down, and also not to call into the, you know, not to be a radio host who says, don't worry, insurance will pay for it all. Those are kind you know, <laughs> that person mustn't go to jail, but it's also there's like a social rule against being that stupid. Um, so I think, I, th I think that's the, to me, that is, I just don't see a way around it. And it's it's frustrating because I, I know I work at the Institute of Race Relations. I know I'm like now connected to this bloody billboard and this website and this movement, and I love it. So maybe I'm just being a narcissist um, <laughs> and thinking that the project I'm working on is the one that matters the most, that we as the Institute are working on, that that's what matters the most. But... On the, but like even as 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 ironic as I try to be, as much as I try and stretch, step out and talk to my friends in Paris and Seoul and New York and Los Angeles about how they're seeing this, like even people that are in a lot of ways quite woke have been in the last week in discussing this this thing with me and been like, you know. I think you might be right. I think it might be the case <laughs> that yeah. South Africa is not going to be able to break the cycle of poverty leading to destruction, leading to more poverty without changing the rules of the game rather than just trying yeah. to change the personnel or the, or the way you put the shopping mall or who owns it or whatever. Well, on a, on a related point, um, although not directly related, but I, I think, it's a similar uh, i'm trying to get at a similar sort of thing here is that um you know for so many years in south africa we've had groups the eff parts of the anc pushing the revolution right we need the revolution the revolution will solve the problems the revolution will bring equality the revolution will free our people from poverty and this week people saw the revolution in a sense. Right? They did not dig it. <laughs> they did not like it. <laughs> it was not for them. And and I don't blame anyone because, man, the revolution is an ugly thing. Uh, yeah. People running through the streets, people burning things, people being shot, violence, chaos, people's lives being destroyed in an instance. It's, yeah, it's anyone with a brain basically looks at that and goes, we can't have this go on. And um, so, yeah, don't yeah, you worry EFF about siding, siding with, with the protests, I think did them no, no favors in the long run. But anyway, what do I worry? Although, Nick, here's my worry is that mm. this is this is like the February revolution of 1917 in, in Russia. So the February, February revolution is like, it's pretty grisly. There's a lot more. Um, reason behind it in the sense that people really are irritated with being stuck in this war that they can't really understand on my analysis they were kind of dragged into the war by pan-slav race nationalists um and most russians and, didn't even yeah, know um, what an aryan was and although the teuton aryan germanic types were supposed to be the enemy they were in the urban centers and amongst the elites and newspaper men but most people didn't really know what that was and then they go like okay we're loyal to our country we'll go fight in the war and then millions die and then they're like dude why are we fighting again it's like oh for like bosnia that doesn't make sense can we can we stop this can we stop the war and they try that and it doesn't work in other words, there's a kind of revolutionary moment where there's a bit of shift in personnel 
like the king goes to not to jail but sort of steps back a little bit like zuma is now in jail but you know it's it's a, it's a minor personnel issue the policy hasn't really changed they stay in war they don't really follow through with serious communist uh recalibrations of the economy so it kind of and then what happens is people realize like okay that revolution thing was grim but it didn't work out but like what we're stuck with is also not working out and then comes along real instigators a group of a few hundred with not that much money who take over the post office the white palace and a couple of logistical pinch points and people are delighted they're like thank god this was relatively bloodless uh more people died in the making of the movie about the no october revolution than during the actual october revolution uh and they were like so now we've got some guys that are just going to put an end to the debates and and whether we like the reforms or not at least as long as we're not fighting about them we're not fighting and we can go forward and promises of bread land and peace resonate at the lowest common denominator level and and then there's a moment's quiet before the civil war starts so well, in other words this is this is like yeah. the aborted revolution run by a couple of useless mashuganas but that really smart terrorists see this next year end of this year whenever when the christmas the inevitable christmas racist moment happens uh <laughs> yes. you have a proper attempt at takeover and whether that's rebuffed or not it kind of i mean none of the kinds of 20th century analogies work very well because violence is much more it's a different thing we live under the era of the bomb it's south africa is much too useless to pull off a civil war but we can pull off much more serious insurrection and <laughs> and the thought is that my worry about what you've just said i agree with it completely but my worry is that most people see the revolution they think this is crap but then for the next year they see more same they see that things don't mm. really get better and they think well this is also crap and then if an elite bunch of revolutionaries actually tries to arrest state power in a so, in a serious way that there's more sympathy for them because they're like well right. this is not mass looting we don't like the looting side but we also don't like the guys in charge side and what and you're dealing with both of those issues so is that mad? Back a, a little bit on yeah. your analogy to say that in the example you're using the new guys come in they take over for a little bit but very quickly people realize that they don't like the re they don't like this revolution as well and the bolsheviks had to spend the next uh, couple of years fighting a grim touch clutch almost ending in total defeat for them civil war that wrecks the whole country has bits of it split away it was not <laughs> there, there was not a lot of buy-in to the revolution um and and in fact i would say that they would have they would have failed if not for them being very cunning and really sneaky and uh, uh playing their and well and yep. discipline yeah and i mean i'm not really sure if south africa's version of the bolsheviks is quite the same thing although yeah. you know it's, it's dangerous to underestimate one's opponents so i think don't think we can rule it out but but my point is that um the the failed revolution didn't make the real revolution much more popular okay 
I think that's uh, probably right. I'll take that. Yeah. And and the application to South Africa, I guess we're just coming back to the same point, which is that hmm. the most likely upshot of this scenario is no changes to the law, therefore no changes to the real economic prospects of South Africans, uh, of most South Africans. Well, look, and we do, therefore we do a continued percolating level of unrest that like bubbles up little bit by little bit, day by day, but that doesn't really concentrate in the way that is concentrated now until some uh, future bellwether event, which might or might not come. So I think I think the very important thing for seeing where we're going is going to be the local government elections in October. We've uh, we've come to this point of crisis, very close to an election, and the country is going to sort of have choices about what it does now um, in a very real way, because, of course, we can still vote in proper elections. Uh, the only election the Soviets had in between their two revolutions, the Bolsheviks actually lost. <laughs> yes. So, I remember that. <laughs> so so uh, uh, that's why they had to really, you know, double down and go the authoritarian route because they weren't going to be able to do the revolution otherwise. Um, and yeah, I think I think our local government elections, even though they won't change the big law, right? They're not going to change BE. They're not going to change labor law. They're going to give us a sign of which way the political winds are blowing. And my feeling now is that if things kind of, if the sentiment that's 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 come out now, if the moderate middle that's appeared now, um, manages to kind of stay together, doesn't get distracted by the Christmas race incident or whatever, then the ground is going to start shifting in a very real way. But yeah, divided, I, you see, I, I wonder about if, that. You see, my sense is that Ramaphosa is the darling. He's got such a symbolical hold on the idea of moderation. And it's for the good reason that he is in his personal capacity a moderate man. He, he doesn't shout. He doesn't make a lot of jokes. He's not like... He's not full of color. He's like quite bland and moderate and staid and composed. He's lived a fairly subdued life despite all his wealth. It's not like can, there's, he's, he's not like a bling bling story guy. about him. My, my father told me. Yeah. So the story is, is, is from when he was, um, and, and I haven't looked into myself, so I'm going to attach the word allegedly to the front, but another story goes. So he used to be involved in the National Union of Mine Workers. Yeah, co-founder. And uh, he encourages, along with the rest of the NUM, a very aggressive, hardline, militant strike in a mine. And it happens, it goes ahead. And in the end, the mine just basically fires a whole bunch of people mm -hmm. because the demands are too much. They were demanding like twice. The mines offered like 15%. They demanded 30% yeah. or something like yeah, that. Yeah, that kind of thing. The... The miners feel like they've been betrayed by their union because they're like, guys, you told us that this was going to work. You've pushed us and pushed us to go for this. You told us you'd support us all the way. And now it's blown straight back on us. And you guys are suddenly absent. So these miners went to the offices of the NUM and occupied it. So Ramaphosa disappeared completely. Mm. He was nowhere to be found during this occupation of the NUM's offices. This goes on for a couple of weeks until a bunch of guys who uh, allegedly were union muscle go in yeah. and basically beat these guys up and chase them up. And then Cyril 
about a month or two after that, after the media storm is done, reappears and it's never mentioned. And I think he's actually done that very much during this thing. Um, yeah, the dude, the dude is a master at riding the waves and just ducking down when things are going wrong and then popping up again when things are when he's ready to take the shine. I, I think that very much plays into his whole moderate persona type of thing. You know, he never gets into the thick of it. I think that's true, and I think that he is the leader of the unofficial opposition to status quo politics. <laughs> Most people, you know, this is the line. This is the line that's being I know, carried it's madness. on my <laughs> that that you know, if if we don't support Cyril now, then we're for yeah. Zuma and for the insurrectionaries. And, he's, 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 and for exactly, the, he's very deliberately pushing that. So, and it's the accumbency effect, right? This is something that right. we saw, for example, worldwide. Uh, as soon as the plague hit, people suddenly got worried. And then they suddenly rallied around their leaders, even people who didn't like their leaders. So Donald Trump's popularity improved temporarily. Boris Johnson's popularity improved temporarily, even amongst lefties that didn't really like them or center lefties or whatever, because they were like, right now you need to rally around the flag. And the person who is the president, if they have any political noose, and I think Ramaphosa has a lot of charisma and 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 wiles uh identify themselves with the flag so being so right now what's happened is that there's been a huge upsurge in patriotism for south africa and yes. ramaposa will use that patriotism to say look patriots support me those who don't are are race baiters are dividers they da whiteys or ifp zulu nationalists uh, and he doesn't have to say this himself. He can just let others say it and 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 right. ride the way. He can, and he I can do imply it, it and then let others do it. Yeah. And I think that because South Africans, because so many South Africans, see, I think South Africa. I think what we've really seen in the last week on the good news side is 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 this amazing distinguished distinction between our IQ in debate versus our IQ in action. Like when it, <laughs> yes. when the news is. When it's just another week, like yes, it's, it's South Africans are so like st stupid, like the the media, the journalists, the producers. It's it's just all so dumb. But the moment it gets quite serious, then we act with purpose and intention and and intelligence and compassion yes. and and genuine human interest. And I think that's that's wonderful. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. But if we don't learn how to speak to each other, if we don't learn how to say um, what needs to be said about both sides of the ANC faction being united around an idea about what the law should be, then I don't know how we win. And I see in KwaZulu-Natal the IFP eating into the ANC's uh, advantage, particularly the advantage that it gained under Zuma, because the ANC can no longer pretend to be the party of Zuma. And I see the ANC limiting that erosion of its base in KZN by saying, look, if you guys defect from us to the IFP, then you're basically uh, giving your vote to this kind of Zulu thing that uh, caused all this destruction. Right. I see the DA and and uh, the ACDP and Cope and so on eating a little bit into the ANC's majority in Joburg, which has been ravaged. But I also see that being curbed or, or, or balked by the ANC making the argument that the, the same argument that Peter Bruce made about the ANC in 20, 
19. Right. You, you have need to vote for to us to stop us. <laughs> You've got to vote for us to stop the worst of us from taking over because the less power we have, the more the worst of us uh, are emboldened to get desperate. And yeah, there's a kind nice. of an emotional, intuitive, strange logic to it. I mean, Dude. parents often give their kids money to buy drugs when they know their kids are drug addicts because yeah, they're no, like, exactly. if I it's, stop it's, doing that, the kid's going to run away and it'll be even worse. It's the worse hallmark of so many abusive relationships. You know, you need to be nice to your abusive boyfriend because otherwise he's going to be even worse. And only by being nice to him, by supporting him, can you help him to get through this difficult patch and then one day get to the sunny uplands where you'll live together in peace and love. It is, and the, I, I, and the, I agree, it's very common out there, but man, it just makes me upset. It's very upsetting, but it's the kind of, how do you break the mold? Like, I mm. think that when, you're, when, you're, when your town, when your community, your neighborhood has been looted, we know what to do. We know how to pick up the litter. We know how to put the glass panes in the little frames and put the putty and hammer it in. And we know how to pick up the bags of mealy meal and put them on the back of the truck and give them to people. And people know how to cook it. Like we practically, we know all of those kinds of things, but I don't know that we know how to talk. And I think that breaking those cycles of, of abuse does require an exercise in symbolic representation movements in the inferential calculus. This is the kind of, Ubuntu thing in the neo-pragmatist sense of like a commitment to to reasoned discussion to the discursive practices by which we find those things that matter in the world but that you can't weigh you can't weigh an abusive relationship you can't hold it in your hand you can't throw a brick at it you can't put three bricks on top of each other to build something around it to guard it we we are practically very connected but intellectually, I feel not because of, I use the word IQ, not because I think people are dumb. I think it's because people are terrified. And I do worry that the that there's a lingering terror, that there's a lingering sense that, look, we, we tested the T here. We, we did something reasonable. We did something intelligent. We followed the rule of law and put Zuma behind bars, even though we knew that there'd be a backlash. And look how crap the backlash was. Look what this commitment to intellectualism and to reason and to equality before the law, look what it gets you. Yeah. It kind of gets you in trouble. So let's do a little bit of that and let's pat ourselves on the heads for doing as much as we did. But let's not do any more because if we start talking about policy, if we start talking about law, then we're just inviting more, more kind of nihilists and anti-intellectuals and, and greedy thugs to meet our words of reason with matchsticks and mm. petrol. Mm. And on that practical level, I don't think anyone wants to pay the cost again. Like, and here's, here's the test, Nick. If, if you could take a snapshot of what's happened, if you could summarize it all, you know, take the top 10 trending videos in South Africa of the last week and go back a month and show them to a random sample of two and a half South Africans, two and a half thousand South Africans, and say, guys, this is what's going to happen if we put Zuma behind bars. Do you think it's worth it? What do you think people would say? Honestly, I think a large percentage would be actually okay with it. They wouldn't be happy about it. It would make them very angry. 
Yeah. But I, I do think that there are quite a few people who would be like, let them come. Yeah. But I do agree that some people would waver then. Some people yeah. who clearly didn't think through, who didn't really think too seriously about these things would go, oh, okay, well, look, maybe we can have some more dialogue. Yeah. More that is dialogue. those people who we need to, we need to worry about. <laughs> yeah, right. And, and, and this is, and by the way, that's such a good point you picked up on there because I'm saying we need to talk it out. Yes, it's, this, it is a terrible thing. Like, Siposele, as much as I liked him, my co-panelist yesterday from the University of uh, Zululand, he was like, oh, no, this police, the brutality, I don't know that we must, the police must be going out there and patrolling uh, and sort of vaguely referencing John Stianezen's call for the army, like, oh, very bad idea. We mustn't make people think the army is the enemy. We must have a dialogue. We must just talk it out. When when I'm saying we we, we need to engage these discursive practices, it's not... That's not the same as just talking, right? Yeah, There's a no, difference exactly, between sound exactly. and noise. Right. You you talk to the people who are willing to talk and who want to talk, and the people who want to throw Molotov cocktails and hit people with pipes, those people go to jail. Yes. And those people that you talk with, you don't just talk on the sort of assumption that everyone's got their own truth that deserves respect. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you yeah. talk on the assumption that there is an objective reality, one true world, one the case that we all uh, sort of co-occupy, and that we all have limited capacities to know what the case is, but that the best way to figure out what it is is by the triangulatory process of of of, of empirical reason, and you 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 devastate the arguments of those people who who aren't willing to commit to uh, to basic objectivism. Um, I think that uh, it, you know, th these processes, you know, it, it, it is like, um, the abusive relationship, right? You, your, your, bo your boyfriend's really nasty and he kind of beats you up but, and then you go talk it out like with your friends yeah, and, and you, and you and both they, cry and they make you any, feel, yeah, and you both yeah. cry again. No, 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 no. We're talking about the kind <laughs> of talking where you, you make a plan, you analyze, you figure out what is the problem, what is the cost-benefit analysis, what are the viable scenarios going forward, and what do you do to bring about the best possible situation uh, given all of those uh, facts insofar as they can be established? It's a very, very emotionally cool and tempered thing. It's not an exercise in um, putting out your feelings and, and, and letting them yeah. carry you away. And I, oh, Nick, I just, I... I yeah I think look I think you're probably right there eh? I mean my 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 gut feeling is that like a lot of South Africans would see this and they'd be like well if this is the price we have to pay to uphold the rule of law then let's do it but it, the question is do we own that own the own the win own the fact that we managed to contain the violence own the fact that we managed to protect so much property own the fact that so many people who were devastated are being helped by their neighbors own the fact that while there might be one or two instances of racism that the overwhelming majority of respondents kind of pushed back against that and, and made sure that racism wasn't the problem where they were. Do we own those victories and say, well, look, we've done it for Zuma. That was the hardest one. Now let's do it again for the easier stuff, which I mean, ultimately the ideas, changing the laws, changing these ideas is kind of easier. Or do we, or do we sort of come out of this drained and exhausted and, and semi-terrified and semi-enthused, but generally just confused, generally just in this 
it was the best of times it was the worst of times it was really don't know what to say about it let's just never do it again yeah look dude this is the country that produces i saw videos of young black women cheering on vigilantes uh hitting people with shambox and things in the street like and and setting you know and like <laughs> this is that there are a lot of south africans out there who believe in the school of hard knocks um yeah. I, 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 I want to think of our, um, uh, our, my family's uh, maid. She's not a South African. She does come from Zimbabwe. And I wouldn't call her, uh, I wouldn't say that she's typical of any group of people because she's a very hard line, uh, unique person. She's only a few years older than me. So she's not some old gogo either. But her solution for this is just that more people must be beaten. <laughs> and I think, I think, I don't think it's a common sentiment, but I think there's a surprisingly large number of people out there in South Africa who look at all this going on and think this is the answer. More people must be beaten. <laughs> she said, it's probably the police. They just beat you. <laughs> now, well, if that can, if that can be channeled into like, yeah. yeah, into a constructive way, I'm not a, I'm not a fan myself, <laughs> but I see the appeal. Um, and and I, I think there actually are quite a lot of South Africans out there. The ones who think that, you know, the death penalty is is, is basically the solution to our crime problem. I don't agree yeah. with them. Yeah. But uh, I think I think there are a lot of those people out there. So you may be surprised, uh, perhaps, by the willingness to go to the war for law and order. I think there's a lot of South Africans who for years and years have been so traumatized by the just constant beating on our doors by criminals by corrupt politicians by just lawlessness that they are very and these people are not always going to you know support good things for the country these are the people who when they're asked if you know would you support a dictator if he brought stability and lawfulness to south africa they say yes which is not a good thing yeah um but in this instance they may be our they may be our allies yeah allies of freedom and liberalism yeah. Uh, but anyway, we are very long now. We are 20 minutes over. Yeah. So do you have any recommendations? Um, All right, let me go first. I, I have one. Yeah. So I don't know why I was listening to Polish patriotic songs recently because I'm a weirdo. And oh. I, uh, I was thinking back to the book or the series of books that made me fall in love with Poland as a place. Uh, and it is... The Fire and with Fire and Sword trilogy, which was I think written in the 1890s and was originally a number of newspaper serials, uh, so it was like episodic, and then it got turned into novels later. And this was the spark that lit the flame of Polish nationalism again after it had been after Poland had been destroyed by its neighbors. And these books they're a little bit difficult to read because a they're a hundred years old and b they're translated from Polish. Um, which anyone who knows anything about Polish knows that it's a little bit of a difficult language. <laughs> it's um, tricky. It's very <laughs> tricky. So uh, it, it takes a little bit of effort to get into. Um, and also it is not, shall we say, it doesn't, it's not, it's not feel good. You know, it's filled with all of those 19th century cliches of like dashing heroes and total glorification of nationalistic violence and just all these things that the enlightened person of today thinks are horrid. And yeah. yet at the same time, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> if you it read it, like, 
<laughs> yeah, like Game of Thrones, real, you know, that kind yeah. of like, like, but like all the all the main characters, it's like it's very easy to know who the good guys and the bad guys are in the story because the good guys are Polish. <laughs> <laughs> There's very little uh, gray area here, and basically, the, the the story plays plays everyone who's Polish, whatever they do. No matter how violent or daring or, or whatever it is, is is a good thing. <laughs> Everyone else is bad. There's also weird bits of racism against, like for example, um, Laplanders. I think is the derogatory term for them, but Sami people from northern Sweden, because the enemy through a lot of the book is the Swedes. Yeah. Um, and uh, one of the big Polish heroes, Sir Zagloba, who's a comedic character goes through the Swedish camp during a truce and he sees a Sami person and he picks him up because he's small and looks at him to see what he looks like. He's like, ah, this is a strange creature and then puts him back down. So, and that's played all of, sort of for laughs. Uh, yeah. There's some anti-Semitic stuff in there, although not hectically anti-Semitic because there were lots of Poles living in Poland at the, uh, uh, Jews living in Poland at the time. Um, so it's, it's very much a book, uh, a series of books out of time. But it is a good read if you get into it because man, mm. it's it's wild. <laughs> it's the only it's the only book series where uh, at at one point heroes impale someone on a stake. <laughs> very good, very good. And this That's is good. played as, as as a good thing. It's a supremely good thing. <laughs> amazing, amazing. I want to check that out. I think my recommendation is um, someone asked me at dinner on Friday night. Um, if I were to time travel, if I was put in a time traveling machine back to 1740, what could I do to prove to people, you know, what could I do to wow, wow people with some amazing thing from the future? That's an excellent dinner party thing. And I had just gone over the proofs for the fundamental theorems of algebra and the fundamental theorem of arithmetic. And... Yeah, uh, some of that sort of only came up in the 1800s. So I thought, you know, mathematics is is kind of nice because it's um, it's kind of outside of time and it's kind of this universal language. So if one could find the good mathemat mathematicians around in the 1740s, even though I, I can't write out the whole proof, I could write out the sort of the, the logical moves of the proof um, and they might be able to fill out the details. And sort of see that, like, I'm clearly not that good at maths. The only way that I could know this is because my story is true, that I've come from the future. And I think part of the reason 1740 is a good year is because, like, I don't know what I could predict within the year. You know, if you can predict <laughs> something about the future, that's great. But, like, everyone's got a prediction about 200 years from now. It doesn't really make a difference. So I thought, anyway, and that's just to say that uh, number file, uh, Wikipedia, uh, three brown, one blue. Uh, these are all um, fun places to check out Matt's videos, and you can get quite a quite a nice sense of, um, you know, I mean, so 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 the one proof is like really old, and it's the proof that every number can be expressed as the product of primes uniquely. So twelve is three times two times two, and there's no other combination of primes that makes twelve. But the other, the, the fundamental theorem of algebra is a is, is a bit more complicated. Um, 
and with 10 minutes i think i could explain it but i think you'll get an even better explanation <laughs> if you just yeah. look it up on number file and you get the videos to go with it so yeah, that's my recommendation it's fun yeah. Yeah. yeah and it is the kind of thing that would work in 1740 so like if you if you're worried about getting kidnapped well it's another time i mean not not necessarily with the peasantry but <laughs> but if you could make it to the courts of europe then you could probably you could probably pull it off yeah you'd need to not be impaled by a polish hero <laughs> on landing yeah, that, guy, the, that guy had it coming i'm not i'm not gonna lie anyway <laughs> <laughs> let me let me let me call it call it here. So thank you very much, Gabriel. I think this was a lot of fun, hmm. and uh, yeah, hopefully our listeners don't begrudge us making another very long episode in such a short, short time. Um, but anyway, yeah, keep the flag of liberty flying. <laughs>